Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, John, Californians went to the polls this week, as I think you did. I certainly did, of course. I, I won't ask you how you voted, but I'm assuming you probably voted in favor of the only proposition on the ballot this time, which is unusual for California. And that was a $15 billion bond measure named Prop 13. That's not the Prop 13 all of us know and either love or hate, the one that was approved by voters in 1978 to cut property taxes. That's right, Lewis. And this year's Prop 13 would provide $9 billion to K-12 and $6 billion to community colleges UC and CSU for new construction and renovations. And right now, it looks like the bond measure in a totally unexpected development will be defeated. Not so fast, Lewis. There are millions of votes still to be counted, and the supporters actually haven't conceded. It may be a couple weeks before we have the final total. Right now, the bond has only 45% in favor and 55% against, and there's a gap of a half million votes for the yes side to make up the difference. Normally, that would be decisive, but analysts are saying that there will be a disproportionate number of votes from Democratic, often young people, who waited till the last day to vote, and so the results may actually swing to the yes side. I, I'm doubtful, but let's be patient and, as the candidates say, let the process play out. But before we look at why the state bond measure did so badly, and usually these bond measures pass. I mean, it should have been pretty much a slam dunk, especially in a context where there seems to be so much support for schools. Let's uh, take a look at the other issue that is on people's minds, and I'd say probably more on people's minds than whether new schools should be built at the moment. And that's the coronavirus that is having a rippling effect across the state. As many of you are aware, Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a state of emergency. The infection has been reported in a dozen counties so far. One of those counties is Orange County, and to find out what counties are doing to prepare for a larger outbreak, we are pleased to have on the line Al Maharis, Orange County Superintendent of Schools. Superintendent, how are people responding in the education community in Orange County? Well, I think our people are responding uh, quite well, uh, very circumspect and trying to take it one day at a time. Uh, naturally, we rely on information. We have a vibrant relationship with our health care agency, with our medical director, and also with the California Department of Public Health. Naturally, this does tie into the CDC. We are a large county office. We have over 650 schools. And so, you know, you would naturally believe that somewhere in the midst of our work, people are going to be concerned. Some, some may react a little more impulsively, but we tried to stay in front of it by giving information to individuals. We had some experience in this during the uh, 2015 school year. There was an outbreak of measles at Disneyland, and that affected about 120 people, uh, visitors to the park. Anaheim is in the central core of our county, and that's where Disneyland resides. And that's where the measles outbreak uh, occurred, right? That's where it was detected. We immediately had to create a, a network. So the, the network that we thought we had in place, we had to strengthen it, the network of communication between what we are hearing from the medical staff and then of naturally ourselves as educators, all stakeholder groups. We all kind of came together 
and developed a fortified communication system to really make sure that those arterials of information were clear and that we were doing it abundantly. We wanted to make sure people were informed because that was the surest way to calm their fears. Are you anticipating school closures and how would that be handled? Should it be done locally or is there a role for the county in helping to decide whether that's appropriate? Well, so far we have one person, a 50-year-old male that was identified with a virus. There are two other cases that are called the presumptive positive. So we haven't had the same kind of outbreak that you're maybe hearing about elsewhere in the state or in the country. Since it could happen quickly, we wanted to make sure that people understood that, you know, there would be a protocol to follow if you were going to close a school. So far, we haven't had that type of a problem. But if the virus is detected in more cases than these, this one and the other two that could be coronavirus, and it starts to spread, then naturally parents will probably not want to send their kids to school. To close a school is a very severe thing to do. We haven't even contemplated the loss of instructional minutes and how the state would react to that. I would believe that it would be viewed as a statewide emergency where the leadership and the General Assembly and you know the governor's office can waive instructional minutes or at least allow districts to work that time back into their weekly and monthly routine so the kids don't lose time. We're also looking at uh, teleschooling where most people have a device. At this point, what we calculate is about a 12% of our people may not have any kind of device such as a phone, a smartphone, a laptop, a desktop computer. Um, so may not be able to avail themselves of online learning, but in those cases, we can provide hard packets of information for students to work on, like instructional programs that are reduced to assignments that students can pick up, parents can pick up for their children and take it home and let their kids continue the uh, learning process. That's important in all of this. So it is a very serious thing if you're talking about excluding a child for one thing. And secondly, if you're going to close the entire school, there's great consequences unless you're proactive and can avert some of that, mitigate it in some way. Well, Superintendent, I hope it doesn't come to that. If it might, you have time to prepare for it. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Al Mejares, who's Orange County Superintendent of Schools. Let's turn now to this week's election. John, as you mentioned, the final count is still out on that massive state school construction and renovation bond measure. But at the moment, the no votes are way ahead of the yes votes, and it looks likely that this bond measure will be defeated. Wasn't this the largest school bond measure in California's history? Yes, Lewis, but you know I should point out that there are also more than 100 local bond measures to pay for school construction and over two dozen parcel tax measures that fund all kinds of programs in the schools. Those were all on the ballot this time? They were. And it looks like those measures also did really poorly, at least by historical standards. To fill us in on what happened with these local measures, we're pleased to have in our studio EdSource reporter Carolyn Jones. So, Carolyn, it looks like many more parcel taxes and bond measures went down, or at least going down, to defeat. We don't know exactly yet because there's still lots of uncounted votes. But uh, what's the situation? Well, that's right. Yeah, a lot could change as they still count the votes. But right now, it looks like more than half of them are headed for failure. About 35 of the bonds are too close to call, and only 19 appeared headed for victory. So that's 19 out of 111 bond measures. That's right. And then out of about 25 parcel taxes, 
Only about a half dozen have definitely been approved. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So you've talked to a bunch of people around the state. I mean, what's the thinking? Well, why did these bond measures and parcel taxes do so poorly? Well, generally speaking, between the stock market plunge last week and continuing into this week, and the spread of coronavirus has just left voters a little jittery. And when they're feeling jittery, they're a little bit more conservative and less likely to want to spend money, is what I've been told. And, you know, in some jurisdictions, there were several school things on the ballot. There was the Prop 13, the state ballot, and then some of these districts were asking for two bonds, and it just might have been a little bit much for people, is what I've been hearing. Now, school districts had a choice as to when to put these things on the ballot. They could have put it in this primary election or November. So what was the thinking about having so many on this March ballot? Well, that's right. A lot of them were banking on this ballot because it's a Democratic primary election, a hotly contested one. And so they were thinking there would be a big turnout of liberal, progressive, Democratic voters who are the ones who are more inclined to vote for school spending. So it was a real surprise when so many of these things went down to defeat. So the optimists are saying they're the ones who cast the vote in the last couple of days. And so we'll see if there are enough of them to swing some of these elections that are close. Now, there's a higher burden for parcel taxes than bonds, although both of them are over 50 percent. What is that requirement? That's right. In California, bonds need 55 percent to pass, local bonds do, and parcel taxes need two-thirds. Carolyn, I think particularly after the various strikes here in California, the polls show that there's a lot of support for schools and teachers and, and a belief that the schools deserve more funding. But that didn't seem to translate into victory for these measures, these, which would have brought extra money, in many cases, quite a considerable amount of money for schools. Why do people say that they didn't see that pro-school impact on the bond measures and the parcel tax measures? Well, some recent surveys show that voters' number one concerns in California right now are homelessness and housing and you know the taxes, the economy overall. And I think that's what people are focused on right now. And schools are a little bit further down the list. It's interesting because historically, bonds have passed over 80% over the last, roughly the last 20 years. And what we're seeing today is such a difference from the past. That's right. In 2016, just a few years ago, almost all of them passed. Don't want to give the wrong impression. Quite a number of bond measures and parcel tax measures did pass. In my kid's school district in Berkeley, uh, got 80% of the vote, approximately. That's that's Berkeley, Lewis. Well... (laughs) I think we do support schools. So, and I know many other communities do as well. But you talk to some communities where the, the measures did pass. And why, why do they say they were successful when others might not have been? Well, in San Leandro, for example, which is, you know, hoping that it looks like their bond is going to pass, they say it's because the last bond that they put before voters in 2016, they spent the money wisely. They did all the projects they said they were going to do on time and under budget. And they think that the community had a lot of trust in them. So that's why they think their bond is going to pass in a climate where so many others are failing. Up in Mendocino Unified, they did a very low-key campaign, they said. They didn't push voters. They weren't putting billboards up or anything like that. But they did offer the public tours of the high school to see what the facilities are like firsthand. And they said that seemed to have made a difference. What would they see? The facilities needed help or what? Mendocino High School, I think, was built in 1948 and needed a little work. (laughs) The message to school districts is that they really have to reach out and explain the need and bring the parents in, I guess, right? That's right. And also another winner this week was San Ysidro School District down in San Diego County. They were the only school district in San Diego County to see their bonds passed so far. And they said they were just out. They had parents, staff members, teachers, community members out in the community, you know, explaining why this was important. 
and they won. But at the same time, presumably in many of these other communities, they did attempt to get their these measures passed and uh, presumably only would have put it on the ballot if they thought they had a pretty good chance of getting it on the ballot. I mean, a parcel tax requires a two-thirds vote, and so you're not going to even try that unless you feel there's very strong support. So the fact that most of these measures, at least at the moment, appear to be going down suggests that there's something deeper going on. People were surprised, definitely. In Morgan Hill, where they were asking for a $900 million bond, they were they were surprised it did as badly as it did. So, Carolyn, what are people saying now that they're going to do? I mean, does this mean they're going to have to somehow figure out how to move ahead without funds, or, or, or what's the plan now? I mean, they all said that they're going to have to go back to the voters sooner or later, whether it's this fall or next year, another primary election. They're going to just going to try again because the repairs still need to get made. They all have facility plans and facility upgrades. A lot of the schools are really aging in California. They all have work that they need to get done, and they are going to come back and ask for more money. And that's for the bond measures, which is for construction and renovation. And the parcel taxes are typically for programs in the schools themselves. So That's right. And in many cases, uh, they already have these funds and programs going. So they face a, a choice of either going back to the voters or eliminating programs. That's that's right. Yeah. Well, keep in mind that parcel taxes are actually proposed by very few school districts because most of them understand that they have a small chance of passage. So it's really only about 15% or so of districts have ever even passed a parcel tax. So. Well, I guess a lot of school districts are regrouping as we speak, uh, trying to figure out their next steps. Thanks, Carolyn, for looking into this and look forward to staying in touch with you on uh, what school districts do next. Thanks. Thanks, Carolyn. Well, John, you've also been looking into why things didn't go so well for the big bond measure, the statewide bond measure, probably for some of the same reasons that these local tax measures didn't do very well. I'm hearing pretty much the same thing. I'm hearing that there was sort of tax fatigue, particularly when it came to property taxes. You know, housing's very expensive. People are spending a lot on housing and costs are going up and they're really concerned about their property taxes that they have to pay. And I think that Carolyn was right. You know, the stock market drops and the coronavirus is making people feel unsettled. And so when that happens, they get a little bit conservative about approving things relating to money. Let me ask you, though, about this use of the Prop 13 label. For those of you who didn't read everything published by EdSource, we did try to explain this, but uh, basically there's a state law that says every 10 years they start numbering of the propositions from one again. And the last time they did the renumbering was in 2018. There were 12 initiatives or propositions on the ballot, went up to Prop 12, and then the numbers just continue on the next statewide election. And so this proposition, it was the only one on the ballot. Also, state law says that bond measures have to be first on the ballot. So it got the title Prop 13. So there was confusion here. People associated the old Prop 13 with property taxes. So naturally, they think that somehow this had something to do with property taxes. And in fact, it didn't because it's a state bond that the interest and the principal are paid back through the general fund. And so, no, it would not affect your property taxes. But once you see that and Prop 13 in your mind, you think somehow there's a relationship to property taxes. And and I think that raised their levels of concern. Well, we've gotten a number of questions from readers and listeners saying, well, shouldn't they retire that number 13? Well, funny you mentioned that, Lewis. This week, 
the sponsor of the bill that led to Proposition 13, Patrick O'Donnell, Democrat from Long Beach. He said he's going to introduce a bill to retire that number once and for all. And on that note, that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Thanks, Kobe. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>